welcome to The Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Fracture Line. We know that this is your favorite podcast, and we know that because of all the likes that we get. How many likes do we get? There were at least a couple, and only one of them was my mom. (laughs) We're mixing it up a little bit today. Um, Some of our regulars are off operating or skiing, but we have the pleasure of Dr. Babak Sarani from Washington, D.C., and he's our president-elect of the society. And we have Dr. Zach Bauman, who's our past president, Sarah Ann Whitback, as usual, and our guest today is... Dr. Matthew Highlands from Canada, and uh, Matthew, welcome to the pod. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to present. Uh, this is exciting. Well, we're glad you're here. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. All right. Well, thanks. It's a real privilege to be able to present on the Fracture Line. So, so I'm a uh, newly minted trauma surgery critical care uh, specialist. I work out of Sherbrooke in eastern uh, Quebec. So. Um, that's that's north of Vermont for people who aren't too familiar with that. I trained in Toronto for uh, my fellowship training, and the work that we're discussing today is is uh, born out of that, and and out of some uh, questions that were pretty glaring out of the system, the way it's organized in Toronto, with the variability in practice that we have between hospitals just within one city. I'm born and raised in Montreal, trained at McGill, then in Sherbrooke, then in Toronto, um, and I'm practicing here as a trauma trauma surgery critical care attending in a uh, moderate volume trauma center which is probably more representative of the kind of patient population that we'd see outside of the inner city u.s uh which is which has some interesting implications for for how these data are applicable here matthew we're going to get to your study in a minute but where does your institution fall in the spectrum of zero to 88 percent if there was a way to be below zero, we'd be there. So that's that's still a work in progress. And okay. for for any for a whole number of reasons that we can get into. No one with flail chest gets fixed. Nobody gets fixed. Barely anyone. I'm the first person that's been recruited here that's actually trained to do it. And and turning around the university center in order to to actually start implementing these these treatment pathways and recognizing patients and getting the buy-in and, and mobilizing the resources to do this, especially in a in the system that we have in Canada, where it's where surgeries are not revenue generating their cost to the hospital, so there's there's a whole number of different implications that make this a little bit difficult to get off the ground in centers that are not already that haven't already adopted this. And I'm sure it's a it's, it's challenges that are present in other centers as well. Although admittedly, it's probably a little bit different than than what we have in the states. It's like turning a battleship yeah. on a dime. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: How many in your study? How many of the centers uh, of uh, in the in the TQIP database? How many of these were Canadian centers? Uh, TQIP doesn't say. Um, so, so presumably, uh, no more than than a dozen is is what I would guess. Uh, so, so the vast majority of these centers are very much south of south of our border. Um, uh, but again, the the the, the the challenges to implementing this are probably markedly different in Canada than they are in the States. So that's one limitation of the study that we can't really get, a, you know, TQIP will give you a, a center indicator, but with very little information otherwise. Um, but again, I, I don't think that necessarily changes the, uh, the, the interpretation of the findings of the studies. What to do with it going forwards, again, that might be, that might be more relevant. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and summarize the study for us, if you would, please. 
This study was born out of the observation in Toronto. So, so there are two level one trauma centers in Toronto that now have ACS level one verification status uh, just, just as of a couple of months ago. Um, and when I was doing my, my trauma surgery fellowship there as of two years ago, um, the, the, the practice with regards to fixing ribs was dramatically different between the two centers where one of them essentially never performed the procedure. Um, and at the other center, um, it was a very, very common thing to see. Um, and, and so patients' likelihood of getting their ribs fixed was more dependent on whether or not they got hurt north or south of Bloor Street than it was uh, dependent on their, their actual injury pattern. Um, and, and our hypothesis was that um, that's a phenomenon that, that probably wasn't unique to Toronto um, and that there was probably a lot of variability across centers. And we were hoping to investigate not whether getting ribs fixed was beneficial to patients, but whether being treated at a hospital where you were more likely to get your ribs fixed uh, actually had an impact on or an association with patient, patient important outcomes. So um, looking at the TQIP database, our, we did two analyses. We started by grading centers on whether where they were on a continuum from very, very liberal with regards to this procedure to uh, very restrictive or conservative or however you want to call it. Um, and, um, and, and to do that, we created a essentially a propensity score for rib fixation. So, so for, for people who aren't all that familiar with that, what that means is you're, you're creating a standard logistic regression model where your outcome is dichotomous. We, we're, we're very used to seeing these with mortality, um, where you would calculate the, the, the likelihood of mortality based on other covariates. Well, we did this for rib fixation. So we would calculate for each individual patient on the basis of the other covariates in the data set and of the practice patterns that are present within the data set, what their expected probability of undergoing uh, rib fixation was. And, and what, we, what we found is, for example, patients with a higher ISS who didn't have a brain injury uh, were more likely to, to get the rib fixed. And, and doing that manipulation allowed us to calculate for each individual patient a percentage. So a patient, any given patient would have an, you know, an, an, a, a priori 85% chance or 0% chance or 20% chance or, or likelihood or propensity uh, of undergoing the procedure. If you think of two hypothetical patients that would, or four hypothetical patients that would present to any given center, if all of those patients had a, a, a predicted likelihood of undergoing the procedure of say 50%, then you would expect in the average center that two of them would actually undergo the procedure. And what we observe in the data set is that in some centers, none of the patients would undergo the procedure. In other centers, all of the patients would undergo the procedure. So if you compare the sum of the expected probabilities, which would be the expected number of patients that would undergo the procedure, right? Four patients, 50% each, you would expect two of them to undergo it. And you did a ratio between the expected and observed ratio of, uh, and the observed number of procedures performed at a center, you get the observed to expected ratio, which is a bit of a, a, a metric that's not entirely intuitive, but essentially places centers on a continuum from zero, which is centers that perform the procedure far less than would be expected to, uh, you know, positive numbers where patients, where centers per are performing the procedure more often than expected. And then we essentially just created, um, you know, placed centers into quintiles based on their observed to expected ratio. Centers in the fifth quintile being the ones that are the most aggressive or the most liberal in performing rib fixation. And centers, first quintile being the ones most restrictive. And then we use that number, one to five, as a predictor in a logistic regression model or linear model or depending on the outcome. Um, to see what the association between the center's quintile and mortality, duration of mechanical ventilation, likelihood of being discharged independently uh, was. 
and what that allowed us to conclude was that there was no real significant association between treated, being treated at the most liberal centers compared to being treated at the least liberal centers with regards to mortality. And that was a bit of a surprise to us. We were, our initial bias or, or hypothesis was that centers that were more liberal in performing this procedure would probably have better outcomes. And that was not borne out by the data. And in fact, looking at our secondary outcomes, what we found is that the centers in the most liberal quintile, so, so the ones that would be in that box, number five, had longer duration of mechanical ventilation, worse uh, likelihood of being discharged independently, more tracheostomies. So significantly negative outcomes, particularly with when we're looking at resource utilization. We then performed a, a patient level analysis. Um, and, and this is what we call an instrumental variable analysis. So, so forgetting about the center level stuff, an instrumental variable is a bit of a counterintuitive concept, but essentially it's a method that allows you to account for unmeasured confounding in a retrospective sort of analysis. Um, it's, it's not perfect, but it works reasonably well. And with our data set, we were able to conclude that using the observed to expected ratio as an instrumental variable, which allows us to account for residual confounding, we found that the odds ratio for mortality for patients undergoing the procedure compared to patients not undergoing the procedure, again, this is a patient level analysis, not looking at center, just over the overall cohort, the odds ratio for mortality was significantly lower, um, so 0.76, and it was statistically significant. And so, so squaring that circle, we have a patient-level analysis that tells us that the procedure is associated with benefit, and a center-level analysis that tells us that being treated at centers that perform the procedure more than you would expect is not beneficial. And what we concluded from that is that the, the procedure in and of itself is probably beneficial and, and again, the odds ratio of 0.76 in the average patient would translate to a, an absolute risk reduction of mortality of about 2%, because that's the, the, the mortality that we had in our cohort was, was around 8%. And the, but that the patients aren't being selected appropriately in the centers that have the most liberal practice that are, you know, have the most inclusive selection criteria for the procedure, which is, which, which gives us food for thought when we're thinking of expanded indications or patient selection for rib fixation, because we don't really have very good guidelines beyond expert opinion for, to guide us in, in, in patient selection. And that's essentially where we are. I have 12 questions. Okay. <laughs> I don't need to go first. I only have one question with 12 subparts. You go first. <laughs> Congratulations. You know, it's clearly an area where we need, we need to understand better who, it's the holy grail, who benefits. And on an individual basis, does this patient in front of me today, are they going to be better off if I operate on them or don't operate on them? So I'm not sure that this has answered that question, but it certainly provides a lot of fuel for thought. A casual reader of this study, however, might conclude that if they go to a center, if they're a patient and they go to a center where they do a lot of rib fixation, they're likely to do worse. They're going to be on the ventilator longer. They're going to have a worse mortality, although you need to explain why the risk of death. Well, you did explain it, but, but your first analysis, they're going to be on the ventilator longer. They're less likely to go home. They're going to have a longer length of stay, and they're going to do worse if they go to that hospital than if they go to the hospital where they don't do very many repairs. That flies in the face of those of us who practice this technology it flies in the face of everything we know and believe about this procedure. So help me understand that. I'm a casual reader of this study, and, and it looks to me like I'm going to do worse if I go to one of those hospitals. And the second question is, has your analysis identified a sweet spot or application of this technology? It's not zero. It's not 
And it may not be 22%, but where, where is it? Do you, do you have a better feeling for that now, having done the study? The second part of that question is difficult to answer because there's significant variability in patient uh, populations that present to different centers, right? Whether you're in your city or not, if you're in Florida, you might see more elderly patients. If you're, right, so, so, so the, the crude proportion of patients undergoing the procedure is actually a, a difficult metric to interpret. And we can get back to the, the actual characteristics of the patients that we think are uh, most likely to benefit. The, the short answer is at this stage in our research, we don't know. To your first point, um, that patient looking at those two hypothetical hospitals wouldn't actually be wrong, right? But the thing to, that's not to say that the procedure is not a good procedure. And I, I, I persist in thinking that uh, root fixation is beneficial in well-selected patients and that um, there is likely a large number of centers that do select patients appropriately. What our study highlights is that the centers at the extreme who are applying criteria most liberally probably are causing patient harm. And if, if a patient were to stand in front of two hospitals and say, this hospital never does the procedure, and this second hospital does this procedure far more often than we would expect based on the practice patterns that we see elsewhere, well, they wouldn't be wrong in thinking that their likelihood of having a negative outcome is probably higher in, in the second hospital, right? When we look at large academic trauma centers in our study, they were clustered around the second to fourth quintiles, right? They, they weren't as likely to be at those extremes. The actual characteristics of, of the hospitals that are performing this procedure most liberally are, are something that are, that, I mean, we weren't able to tease out very significant um, trends as in, you know, centers that do it more tend to be larger, or, but definitely see a clustering of large academic centers um, around the median which is to say that it's it's not about not doing this procedure, right? And, and you could say the same for any surgical procedure that has benefit, right? Every surgical procedure we do has indications and contraindications. If, if you apply a procedure liberally to a patient population that doesn't meet appropriate indications, you will be causing harm, right? That's that's all this study highlights. And the, the problem then becomes, well, which patients should we be selecting? What is the sweet spot? We don't have the answer to that yet. But one thing that, that I think is important to highlight is indication bias with regards to this is huge, right? Most of the data that we have with regards to root fixation is retrospective. And that means that you're looking at database studies. And we know that the baseline prognosis of patients who are selected for root fixation and those that aren't are, are dramatically different, right? That's why the, the procedure is associated with uh, survival, because if you see a patient and you expect them to die, you're not, you're far less likely to perform red fixation than if you're seeing a patient that you expect to survive, which is probably appropriate. Now, the problem becomes indication bias essentially boils down to patients that look identical in the database, if we want to simplify it, that look very different at the bedside. So if two patients look identical in the database, but when you, for example, two patients with the similar age, but, uh, and have a severe traumatic brain injury. Well, at the bedside on day two, you might see one of those patients completely unconscious, unresponsive with an ICP monitor and a second patient who's awake and cursing and sitting up in the, right? And, and you'd be much more likely to anticipate that one of them is going to do well. Now, those differences don't appear in TQIP because we're basing ourselves on initial injury severity scores, initial findings on imaging. And it would be easy to conclude that those patients have the similar baseline likelihood of survival and to say, well, this patient got root fixation and he did it better and this patient didn't, right? So, so those differences that you see at the bedside that you don't see in the database are what drives indication bias. And the pitfall, 
And it's actually quite simple to construct a regression model that doesn't appropriately account for that confounding. For example, just a standard logistic regression with mortality as the outcome, and you plug in a bunch of covariates. And it's, it's actually quite easy to show that there's an association between root fixation and survival, which is not surprising, based on what we would anticipate the direction of effect of that survival bias to be, that, that indication bias to be. But it's also quite easy to demonstrate that if you restrict that analysis to patients with a severe traumatic brain injury, for example, your association with survival is dramatically inflated. Again, because those two patients probably look even more different at the bedside, the patients who have sort of extended criteria than your average patient. And you can do the same with extremes of age, and you can do the same with patients who have spinal cord injury, right? Because again, the, the effect of indication bias in those populations becomes inflated. And so the, what we have to watch out for as a, as a trauma community is, is studies that don't adequately account for confounding by indication, because those could lead us to apply extended selection criteria for this procedure and potentially lead us down the path of performing root fixation on patients for whom it's not appropriate. And I suspect that's what's happening in these centers that are at the extreme. So without actually being able to give you a, a satisfying answer to who we should be fixing ribs on, I think we should be a little bit skeptical as a community of extended indications if they don't really smell right, because the, the demonstrating an association with survival isn't the be-all and end-all of, of selecting patients appropriately. What do you say to those surgeons who say, yeah, I, I get the concept that not all flail patients are the same, and that if we're operating on patients with relatively minor flail, then we may be subjecting them to the risks of prolonged hospitalization and all those sorts of things. But what we don't know is whether or not that patient would do better than a comparator six months from now or a year from now. Are they going to be back to work because they had fixation or are they, is there no benefit? So the, your endpoints are the ones that we have in the database, but as almost all good studies do, it, it stimulates more questions than it answers. So I congratulate you for that. And you, you clearly have a mastery of this data and the, 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 way it, the way these studies are analyzed and the whole thing. So I'm, I'm quite impressed with that at, at such a young age. You look like you just graduated from high school. So <laughs> thank you. Matthew. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. All right. Who else has questions for Matthew? I'll, I'll go next. Um, so I, I agree with you, and I agree with your interpretation of the study. You, you took one of my questions and answered it already, which is um, a flail and T-quip is not necessarily the same patient to patient. It's just a flail. I, I've been uh, potentially um, dubbed, perhaps accused, by someone on this panel of being an anti-plater, which is not true. I just choose my patients carefully. Uh, so to your points, Matthew, I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> my question is this. You know, you talk about volume and relationship between volume and outcome. But I guess, you know, when, when I think about surgical volume and outcome, I think about like really complicated operations where more is better, like an esophagectomy or perhaps a Whipple, trisegmentectomy. You know, these, these very, very high-end operations that I just steer away from. I think of rib plating, believe it or not, as a subcutaneous operation, which is one reason I, I, basically, I myself, I'm not a proponent of the intrathoracic approach. It takes a subcutaneous operation, makes it an intracavitary operation. Why would you do that? Does one need practice? Like, would you expect volume to translate to better outcome for a procedure where by the time you see an actual organ, you've gone too far? That's, a, that's an interesting question, um, and, and the, the study that's often quoted is the one about, I think it goes lucky number 13, you know, with, with 12 
procedures a year being the, the inflection point for better outcomes across centers. I'm not as convinced as others by the findings of that study. Again, I think, I think association and causation are two different things. And I think there's significant variability in the way these procedures are performed, right? So, so to your point about it not being an intracavitary operation, I would say in Canada, the vast majority of rib fixation procedures are associated with at least a VATS for evacuation of a hemothorax and then inspection of the cavity and, and for billing purposes, right? Uh, the, the like revenue generation and billing are, are definite drivers of this procedure. And that's, that's something that we haven't really talked about, but it's not, it's, it's a bit of an open secret. And it's one of the big differences between Canada and the States in that RVUs are, are a bit of a foreign concept to me, but the, that can drive sort of institutional impetus for, for performing these procedures. So I, I don't know that all rib fixation procedures are actually not intracavitary. With, with regards to volume, I think there's a, also a very big difference in the approach, right? As someone who does these once a year may have less, uh, the, the, it, it may not be an intracavitary procedure, but actually performing an appropriate muscle sparing approach that doesn't create gigantic flaps and minimizes morbidity is a big part of what makes this procedure have a good outcome. And I think the argument that surgeons who are more experienced in doing this procedure might do it in a way that is less invasive or, or less traumatic is potentially a sound argument. I, I don't know that I'm entirely convinced by the association between volume and outcomes being as, as robust as some people make it out to be. Uh, but but, but I, I do think that there's probably a, a floor on the number of cases a year a center should be doing. And and the the flip side of that is there's, it's more than the procedure, right? It's, it's also about uh, pathways of care and um, uh, relationships with anesthesia and regional anesthetic and, and nursing care on the ward. And these are things that are different. And if, if we take the number of rib fixation cases as a surrogate marker of overall trauma volumes, then there may be an association there as well. Right? That's unrelated to what actually goes on in the OR. So firstly, you have got to join the Chesterfield Injury Society because you know what you're talking about. <clears throat> and I want to hang out with you. So that's really important. And yeah. I'm the incoming president. 100%. So that's my decree. You're in. Just the way it is. Pay Sarah. Sarah Ann, send him the stuff. Yeah. Send him the paperwork. Right this now. is very Perfect. important. You're one of the few people I like. So that's important. I think one of the things you said is really interesting because it's the chicken and the egg. And I don't know what came first. When I speak to a lot of my colleagues who have much, much higher operative volume than I do, SSRF volume than I do, they say things like, well, Bob Axe, see, we have to plate a lot of ribs because our anesthesiology folks are not aggressive with regional pain blocks and ketamine and lidocaine and da-da-da-da-da, and you got to do something. And I will gladly admit to you one of the reasons why George Washington has a somewhat lower rib plating volume. There's a bunch of reasons, but one of them clearly is our anesthesiologists are ungodly aggressive with placing paravertebral blocks in particular, which is kind of what we do. And, you know, every block that goes in is one less case I do. It kind of hurts my soul because of the RVU thing you just mentioned. So it's hard to say. Would you expect a high-volume center to have the, <clears throat> the care bundle? Um, or are they a high-volume center because they don't have the care bundle, and that's why they're a high-volume center? It's a chicken and the egg. And TCOP can't answer that question. <clears throat> so all sorts of reasons, as I read through your paper and really think about your outcomes, it makes you wonder if the high volume centers don't have all the adjunctive support, well, no doubt their outcomes are worse. But if, as compared to the low volume centers, right? I mean, until we do a good RCT on this, and God love him, Fred Pierachi tried, but all of none of us could agree on perioperative pain management to make it a uh, protocolized approach. So, really interesting stuff. I that's there's no question there. It's more of a declarative statement. But that was really good. 
the the you know one one of the other questions that arises when you're talking about regional anesthetic is what do you do with a patient who's doing fine with their paravertebral block, but that's not going to go home with, uh, you know, with with a catheter and a pump, right? So, if we're looking at you know early mortality and and mechanical ventilation and hospital length of stay, that might be one thing, but there it's it's also conceivable that there might be competing risks with regards to long-term morbidity, return to work, um, you know, uh, chronic pain whereby perhaps if you're performing SSRF, you're prolonging the initial hospital stay, but your patient may have better pain control. Like, we, we just don't know. Well, and I'll, and I'll, um, I'll confound your answer even more. <clears throat> One of the really key members of the uh, society, Sylvia Morasco, who is in Australia, so there's a whole different social structure there, right, published that SSRF is not associated with a faster return to work. Of course, their social support systems are dramatically different than the United States, which is different than Canada. And over here, if you just don't work long enough, you will go broke. Nobody cares. Whereas in Australia, they actually care and help you. And I suspect the same may be true in Canada. So it's very hard to take these studies across different countries, different economic support structures, different social structures, and compare them. I think at some level, all politics is local. And what you find in Canada versus Australia versus the United States, Three very different findings. Yeah, I mean, y you would expect that to be the case for return to work, but you know, pain is pain. Um, and if and if the procedure reduces long-term pain, which is not something that we've demonstrated, or admittedly, you know, it's it's something that's going to be difficult to demonstrate across, you know, consistently across different different social sort of contexts. Yeah. Uh, but again, you you would expect that the like if it's going to work, you it's a challenge. It's a challenge because I think what drives the decision to perform SSRF in a significant number of cases. And we want to look at, in our next study, we want to look at patients who actually don't have a flail chest to undergo this procedure, right? Because then you would argue, well, we're not doing this to save their life if they just have one very displaced rib, right? I, I think that the, the thought that it's going to actually improve pain control and, and improve quality of life is one of the main drivers for performing this procedure, despite the fact that the data to support it or the solid data to support it really aren't there. So I, I really applaud your your work here, uh, Matthew. I think it's a, this study actually probably raised about a million questions for me. Um, but just a couple of comments and then a question, and then I got to run to the operating room. I apologize. But um, um, so you made a comment that, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, prospective trials uh, about refixation. And I will agree. I think that a lot of the data has come out that's retrospective. But on the flip of that, to play a little bit of devil's advocate, we now have six prospective randomized controlled trials for flail chess all six of them demonstrating a mortality benefit and all of them having their own other outcomes, you know, a variety of things, pneumonia, um, length of stay, vent days, et cetera, you know, showing improvements. Not all of them had the same exact outcomes, but mortality was the one thing that was common across the board. And so I would argue that when it comes to flail chest, you know, when we're looking at a retrospective analysis that you did versus six prospective randomized controlled trials that are kind of our gold standard, you know, I would have to lean on the fact that we have six of them now that demonstrate this, you know, that we're pretty well done. I mean, obviously all of them had their flaws. Um, but I guess the question that, you know, really comes to mind is, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to do a, another prospective randomized controlled trial of such nature just because of the difficult, at least in the United States, because of the difficulty it is, you know, you sit there and you explain a procedure like this and either that patient's already made their mind up either they want it or they don't want it one or the other and that's kind of game over you know 
Fred Prachi demonstrated that in the non-flail that, you know, how challenging it was to truly randomize a patient. So what are your thoughts on that and trying to, to sort through that? Like, like a lot of things in surgery, I personally don't think that randomized control data are going to be available in my lifetime to really conclusively answer this question, which is why we need to come up with some creative ways of looking at the retrospective data that we have that is high quality and try to tease out who it is we think benefits. And I, I think the argument that, that we've conclusively demonstrated mortality benefit in randomized controlled trials is, is a fair point, albeit in very small trials. If you, you know, if, if, we, if we step beyond surgery and look, for example, at, at the high quality trials in the critical care world or, or that, you know, the various critical care trials groups are, are performing, like these would, be, these would be considered pilot studies, right, the, the majority of them. And the likelihood, the likelihood that that signal is spurious is not negligible, right? Um, and, and it's the best data that we have to go by. So I think, I think concluding that in those specific patient populations, there is a mortality benefit is not necessarily wrong. Now, the problem arises that we have a lot of patients who wouldn't have been candidates for those trials. And the mortality benefit in, in, in a number of them is limited to subgroups of patients, for example, who are on mechanical ventilation or who are, you know, who, who again, are, are not necessarily representative of the average patient that we're going to be confronted by. And different centers have clearly adopted different approaches to this that are not necessarily evidence-based and that are a reflection of the uncertainty that we have because the data are limited. So, so I, again, I, I, I don't claim to have an answer to this. I, I think we need to recognize that, I, I agree, uh, another large randomized controlled trial to answer this is probably unlikely to happen. But again, we have to work with the data that we have. I, we could go on forever here. I, but I go, when, I, when I read the paper, I went back to this idea that actually performing the procedure on a patient, maybe inappropriately, could result in a tracheostomy or a longer length ICU stay. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and tell you I've never in my experience remember a patient needing a tracheostomy because they had a rib fracture repair. Now it's associated with rib fracture repair because sometimes patients are stuck on a ventilator or, and they need a tracheostomy because they have a brain injury, they have bad pulmonary contusion, whatever. But but your data suggests that if you go to a place where you do where people do this liberally and probably overutilize it that you're, you're more likely to get to receive a tracheostomy. It seems to me is that these, we're, not, we're comparing apples to oranges. The patients at the low utilization hospitals at the extreme and the patients at the other extreme are not the same patients. The, people get tracheostomies in this setting because they have, they're sick as hell. They've been, they have multiple system injury. Their chest wall is mangled. Those patients, if they're treated at a, patient, at a hospital arguably that doesn't ever fix ribs, they're not going to do well. Or they die, or they or they get transferred to a a, a center where they might get fixed. So, uh, how convinced are you that these, these these populations across the quintiles are looking at the same severity of injury? Is that a question? That's a question. That, that, sounds, yeah. that sounds like a question to me. Um, the I I think using the statistical methods that we have available to us, we've adjusted in our analyses for things like the presence of a severe brain injury, ISS. And, and other injury pattern variables, right? None of that is perfect. And, and there may be some residual confounding there. What reinforces, in my mind, the credibility of that association with tracheostomies is that we also see it with regards to ventilation days. We also see it with regards to duration of ICU stay. We see, and, and the trend, when, when you actually look at the figure, right, is, is statistically significant when you compare quintile five to quintile one. But it gets like the, the the signal is is progressive, right? There is a trend with increasing quintile, like a, like a dose response kind of thing, if you if you want to call it that. 
just don't understand it. I mean, in my experience, it, it, it may be that, you know, the, the, the air is different where you are or the, or, or, or the plates don't feel as, as painful. But, but I mean, I've, I've seen patients who are not on the vent end up on the vent. You know, sometimes it's a week later. There may be some intermediary steps. But I think, I think the idea that surgery is traumatic and is an added physiologic stress is not necessarily something. Their physiology gets better the moment their ribs are stabilized. If, if they had a flail to start with, right? If they had a flail to start with. But if okay, you're doing, that's but, fair. Right? So, so, so again, this comes down to patient selection. And if we were only, so, so for example, if TQIP had a little dichotomous variable that said physiologic versus radiologic flail, I'm sure that these associations would be different, right? If we could uh, control for that. Yeah. And, and I suspect that a lot of patients who do not have a physiologic flail who look awful on imaging, which which happens, right? We've all seen these patients whose scan looks worse than the patient at the bedside are are undergoing the procedure and deriving little to no benefit. And I think if, if you're if you're not seeing those patients, it may be that your selection criteria are appropriate, right? But if you were liberally performing this procedure on, on, on patients that don't need it, which is I think the the, the crux of the issue, um, you may be seeing those patients who. You know, and, and yeah. again, there may be some intermediate steps down the line, but then you're, 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 you're subjecting the patient to a physiologic stressor that is right. not beneficial. So I, th- I, think, I think we all can conclude that not every flail patient needs an operation. The problem is we, we publish our guidelines and we say flail chest is an indication. So it's, it's, not, it's not nuanced enough. And we're going to have to, in our next, as we move forward, we have to be careful when we print guidelines that we don't lump every flail patient into the, you got to operate on a basket. You know what I mean? I've seen it happen where, you know, you've, you've, you, if you're in a center that's trying to adopt this, they'll say, well, what do we do? How do we standardize practice across, you know, 10 different trauma surgeons? Well, we, well, there's this, there's this guideline that says more than 50% displacement, you do it. All right, are we taking that box? We're taking that, look at it. Oh, we're taking it. Okay, let's bring them to the OR, right? And I think that happens in more centers than we think. That's probably not optimal. Well, I mean, one option is you can look at TCO. I think TCO allows you to determine if someone was intubated <clears throat> before, after operation. And I, I'd be curious to see if we could do a drill down on the flails that were intubated before surgical fixation. And I'll bet you in that group, you will def, def, demonstrably see benefit. i questionable on the ones that were not intubated before operation, because to your point, some are just little cracks that somebody called a flail and some are 100% displaced that somebody called a flail. But I've always kind of contended that respiratory failure due to flail chest has I will say my heart of hearts, a mortality benefit, but at the very least, a morbidity benefit from SSRF. Unfortunately, TQIP doesn't tell you that. Um, what it'll tell you is whether patients were intubated in the emergency department or not. So that, that variable is in there. But otherwise, you have a duration of mechanical ventilation. Whether that's before or after surgery is, is difficult to, to know because you don't actually have a time of intubation, as, as far as I know. But if you take a one that's intubated in the ER with, um, let's say, a chest AIS score three or higher and no other AIS score that's really high, so presumably they were intubated for their chest injury, and look at those people, then I think you'd find benefit, personally. Yeah, so we've done that. Um, and, and the problem that we have is that the, the confidence intervals become very wide in, in what is a much smaller subgroup that probably underestimates, well, that, that certainly underestimates the number of patients that are intubated prior to the procedure. So it's difficult to draw conclusions. The, the associations with negative outcomes in the subgroup of patients that are intubated in the emergency department are not statistically significant, right? So, so being treated at a higher or more liberal center or center that performs the procedure more than expected if you're intubated in the emergency department, in our study, 
there was no demonstrable association with anything, right? Uh, all the confidence interval across the, the, the line of no effect. So is that because the sample size is much, much smaller than it would otherwise have been if we had captured all those patients? Is it because there really is no effect? It's hard to know. But we certainly were not able to demonstrate any benefit either in that subgroup. Um, all of these analyses are published as a, as a supplement. The, the appendix is very, very dense, uh, but it's, it's all there. And it, it is interesting because there does seem to be, at least within that subgroup, a, a, a different effect. That's been fascinating to, to take a deep dive in here, Matthew. This is, this is great. It got me thinking about a lot of things. One observation. About a decade ago, or maybe a little bit longer, your senior, senior author published the rate of, I think he used the National Trauma Database for that study, he looked at how many people with flail received SSRF, and it was a, it was a paltry 1.5%, if I'm correct. And in this study, it's 22%. So there's there's been a significant change in the application of this technology, and some would argue it's not, you know, it should be closer to 40 or 50 or whatever. But have you had a chance to have conversations with Dr. Nathan um, about that shift over time, and what are his observations about that? So I haven't spoken with... Avery, about that specifically, um, but we have had conversations within our group about about that, and it's it's clear even looking at our data over five years that between 2016 and 2020, there's a very clear upwards trend across all quintiles in the number of patients that are getting the procedure, and that that's one of the things that we're going to want to explore in our our future research is is exactly what is going on there, which patients are actually undergoing the procedure more, um, and how do those how have those practice patterns changed. Because one of the ways to better identify patients for the procedure today um, is b because our study really, the, the, the quintiles of the, the observed to expected ratio, all this is predicated upon comparing a hospital's practice to what the generally expected practice or what the mean within the group would have been. And I think characterizing the trends and the, the patient population that's undergoing the procedure in general and, and trying to hone down on what the generally accepted indications are, not based on expert opinion, but based on what's actually happening across centers. Like who are the patients that we all, all appear to agree should undergo this procedure is probably a good step in actually helping us determine what a good baseline indication for this procedure would be. Right? And you, you point out that the number of procedures that's happening is higher over time with flail chests. I think it's probably dramatically higher if you look at non-flail patients, right? Uh, where where the, the historic oh, yeah. number of patients who would undergo this is probably zero, and it's, it's probably much higher than that now. Again, on the basis of very limited data. So in the absence of a perfect predictive tool, depending on your aggressiveness, you're either going to err on the side of offering this operation to people who don't necessarily need it or withholding it from patients that do. So I would be curious of whether or not those are ethically or morally different and whether Dr. Sarani or Dr. Erickson, where they fall on the side of this, you can't be perfect. So are you going to err on the side of fixing a couple people a year who sh may not have needed it? Or are you going to withhold it from two or three patients a year that could have used it, but you didn't do it? Does that question make sense? Ever. I can take a swing at that. It's an interesting question, and I think one of evolution. I can tell you um, years ago, we were quite conservative about who we were offering surgery to, and some of the newer data has skewed us probably a little more to the more liberal application uh, of it. 
the non-flail study really was very um, practice changing for us uh, at our center as we um, really weren't doing a lot of non-flail prior to that study being published and then started offering it more and saw a lot of people benefiting. So I think I'm probably leaning a little bit more to the offer it and maybe a few more people are getting operations than maybe necessarily need it, but I think we're pretty damn perfect. But fewer are slipping through the cracks and you're perfect. Okay, that sounds good. Sarani, I think I know where you where you would uh, come down on this. You think? Quandary, right, you go for This moral quandary. Predict, tell me. Tell me what do you think? Because I want to. I think you. I think you would be low to um, inflict uh, a procedure on a patient who didn't absolutely need it and uh, err on the side. And it would be hard. You sleep better at night with the knowledge that you you let a few people slip through the cracks. I disagree. With that. that is no. You are incorrect. Ha ha. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite most conversations in the hospital, because uh, I will. This takes time. Uh, can, I, will, I will pull up a chair to the patient's bedside. I'll probably be there for somewhere in the order of 20 to 30 minutes personally. And I Love will it. walk them through the literature and I will lean very heavily on the non-flail data. And I will make no promises. But what I'll tell them is, look, man, here's the deal. I think I can help you. I make no promises on that whatsoever. That's a five-minute conversation right there. The data show the following. Over the next two weeks, I will definitely help you. Following three to four weeks from now, all bets are off, kind of just depends, but opioids suck, so on and so forth. So we have a nice 30-minute conversation, and we distill the literature down big time, and usually they consent. Almost always, usually sure, consent. please operate on me. But the benefit is, the informed consent I get is so good, they're like, man, you're so, you just know your stuff, like Matthew with his paper. You just know your stuff, and there's an element of trust that's gained, so that even if they do not benefit, they're happy. And they don't, I've not over-promised and under-delivered. If anything, I've under-promised and maybe over-delivered, which wow. is great. So I really enjoy that conversation a lot. I actually, um, I, I've, you took the words out of my mouth, believe it or not. I'm, you and I are, I bet our conversations are very similar. Uh, yeah. but I, it's just fascinating to me because you can't predict with clarity. Now, I feel comfortable predicting some patients, mangled chest, sure. stuck on the ventilator, whatever. I, I'm 98% confident I'm going to help them with an operation. But it's the, it's the gray zone where you have to make, help, them, help them make a decision based on limited data. That's, but morally, you don't want to do either one. You don't want to operate on somebody who doesn't need it. And you don't want to withhold it from someone who would benefit from it. You know, I think we just, it's something that everybody should wrestle every time they talk to a patient about rib fixation. They should ask themselves th these questions. And I think Matthew's data is going to help with, with that, except with the exception that I, if I operate on uh, uh, too, too many people who don't need it, I'm going to end up doing tracheostomies on some of them. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> But anyway, Matthew, this has been really fun. I, I, I would love to do this for another hour, but I, I know everybody has to run. So thank you again, and please uh, please accept our invitation to join the society, and we hope to see you at, a, at, a, at our meetings coming up or, you know, uh, or any of our educational events. And uh, Dr. Sarani, Dr. Erickson, Sarah Ann, thank you so much for today. Can I ask one quick question? One thing that kind of got my attention in your, in your article, which was really awesome, is – at that time, 16 to 20, there were quite a bit of technology changes during that time as well that were out there. 
did you factor in the year of treatment into your analysis to see if that had any bearing on the outcomes? Because I can tell you during that time, it was a huge revela uh, revolution in how we approach these patients at our center. And what was done in 16 wasn't anywhere close to what was done in 20. We did include that in our models. Um, and so, so I, can, I can say we definitely adjusted for it. Um, the looking at the actual association between um, the year of of admission and uh, actual outcomes, the, the the association there wasn't statistically significant. There was a very significant association in the propensity model for undergoing the procedure, right? So, so you're much more likely to undergo the procedure if you were hospitalized in 2020 than if you were hospitalized in 2016. Um, but I think I think our and although there's there's probably an association under there somewhere, right? If we, if we think that this procedure in and of itself is, is beneficial, then there, there's probably an association there, but I don't think the sample size is big enough to tease it out. So, so everything that we have with regards to that specific covariate in the models crosses, uh, the, the, crosses zero. So it's, it's difficult to answer that question, but you're certainly much more likely to undergo the procedure if you were, if you were um, hospitalized later. And again, that's not surprising, right? I, th I think we've all seen this in our, in our centers. All right, Sarian, any updates? Yes, we do have just a few. <clears throat> so we have Journal Club coming up on February 7th um, at 3 o'clock Mountain Time. So join us. One of our, our colleagues, Dr. Ditalano, I think is how he says his last name, from University of Arizona is going to be presenting a paper that he recently co-authored with his, his partners. Um, so you'll want to join us for that. And then we also have Case Review on February 28th. Um, and that is at, I believe it's at 0700. Let's glance at that. Yes, that is at 0700 Mountain Time. So be sure to join for that one. We have three terrific cases. So we'll want to see both of those um, coming up on the next couple of Wednesdays. And we also have our um, CUS SoFlo meeting in Miami, Southern Florida. Um, on Friday, March, excuse me, Saturday, March 2nd. Um, so that will be didactic through the morning and then hands-on and cases in the afternoon. Um, if you want to join, it's a day-long event or um, refer others to it. Um, no charge to be there, just kind of a regional meeting for, for those in uh, the Southern Florida region area. And But anybody's welcome, right? If they want to hop on a plane and Get a day of sunshine. There's CME provided. If you want to come hang out in uh, in Southern Florida, come come join us for the day. And uh, and it's free. You can get five and a half hours of CME credit and uh, learn a little about rib fixation. If you know anyone in that area or you know anyone who wants to learn a little bit, um, the, the hands-on experience includes um, all of our major plating entities as well as uh, one of our cryoablation partners. So go ahead and uh, send them our way. They can come check it out. Awesome. All right, now we do the final stitch. I'll go first. I, I think many of you know that I have had some health issues this last month. January has been a very busy month for me, but not in the hospital. Oh, well, that's not true. I've been in the hospital, but not as a clinician. And uh, for, I'm glad to see February finally uh, uh, show its head. But, but what it, what it, uh, I, I felt adrift uh, during some of this. I, I was no longer a surgeon, and I was no longer an athlete. I couldn't work out, and 
I was struggling with identity, and I, but I, what I found was that my he was family stood in for me, uh, buoyed my spirits. I joined all of the educational events, and uh, I just re- just reiterated how important the society is to 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 me and my professional and mental satisfaction. So uh, thank you, CWIS, for getting me through a tough month. Thank you. We're looking forward to seeing you continue to heal and continue to lift nothing over 10 pounds. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. That's the truth. <laughs> I am happy to go next. So you guys obviously don't know much about my house. Well, actually, but you'll be coming to Salt Lake. So I live about four miles outside of downtown Salt Lake, right? And just in very much in the burbs. But my little neighborhood, all the houses are between about 1,200 square feet and like 3,000 square feet. It is very, it's a very small little area. All the houses are 50 to 70 years old. It's, it's just a very old little neighborhood. It's nearby an, an old university. I mean, a, a, a well-established old university. Like it's, you're getting the picture in your mind, right? It's, it's just a, an old, fun little area, historic, etc. And there is about a mile away from my house, there's just kind of a basic shopping area. And they've just recently put in three or four towers of, of stacked housing. And um, it, there's a township ordinance. It can't be more than 100 feet tall. So there are these few stacked properties, etc. And um, they now have, there's some developer who has purchased an old bank building and they have now put in to build a 21 story tear the bank building down and they're putting in this 21 story high rise stat like mixed use living so shops on the bottom then like eight floors of parking structure and then you know the rest of it will be these these condo properties in this very tiny little like we're not in a downtown structure at all it is going to be such an eyesore and it, you know we we very much need the additional um, living space there, the, the area is just very overpacked. And there are, like I say, there's this university just right in um, about a mile away. And so they need more, more space for that. And people are aging and need condos, etc. So it very much is necessary, but the neighborhood is losing their minds. There was this big community meeting last night. And so I was listening through the, the live YouTube channel as I was on a run and people were just shouting. They held it at the local high school so that they, they would have plenty of space. They usually hold it at this little community center for 30 with 30, 30 chairs. And instead, they held it in the local high school and it was packed. And as the developers were up on stage, people were shouting at them. Like it was just, they were so harsh. And all these little neighbors of mine who were these very docile, sweet little people, they were going to the mic and just screaming at people. Like it is just so contentious and, you know, flyers on everybody's doors. And oh man, I I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm really... I'm feeling all the feels for the neighbors and the city council and and the developers actually because they looked pretty uh, they looked pretty taken aback. So there's a lot of contention in my in my small little area of Small Lake City, but it's it's fascinating. And we may yeah. have a new a new high rise. So if you're looking for a place to live in two or three years, you could come be my neighbor. You're welcome. Mormons behaving badly. I mean, we could have a new, whole new reality show. Right. You, would th- I mean, all this poor behavior, no alcohol. It was a lot. There was just a lot, to, you know, there's a lot to absorb there. You got that going for you. As a lot of you guys know, I have a uh, elective practice down here of rib fixation and a clinic where I see a bunch of non-union, mal-union rib fractures and other 
uh, rib diseases down here and it continues to grow and I am excited to share with y'all that starting this summer we're going to two days a week of rib clinic um, and I am going uh, to be doing a whole lot more clinic time and a lot more non-urgent rib fixation uh, clinic and non uh, I guess non just wall related non uh, surgeries. So if you got anybody with xiphodynia or fractures that didn't heal or hardware that went awry, send them my way. I'm looking for them. Man, expanding. I like it. Thanks, Everett. Good job. Dr. Sarani. I come to you with a heavy heart. And the reason is, although I'm really bad at it and I have zero grace, I do enjoy skiing. The weather last weekend when I decided to take a weekend off with my family and my wife to go skiing in Pittsburgh was 80 degrees. That would be <laughs> no. 80 degrees. That's why you like barbecue. And so it wasn't 80 in Pittsburgh. It was 80 in D.C. It actually was. Uh, in Pittsburgh, I think it was on the order of 55 or 60. And so we went slushing, not skiing. We cut our weekend away by a whole day because we figured it's just not worth the time. And frankly, the grass is dangerous. So we came back and there's your global oh, warming update for this. Man. Thank you for that. However, I put a plug in for my Canadian friends to the north. Because there's a show that I really enjoy watching. It's a Canadian reality TV show. So everyone's nice called Heavy Rescue 401. Matthew, you familiar with this thing? I have, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Dude, it was such a cool show. It's a show about tow trucks. And it turns out the busiest highway in North America oh is in gosh. Canada. And these massive big rigs are constantly flipping over because it's still cold there. And then they get these enormous tow trucks to rig these things up and flip them back over again. I cannot stop watching this. I'm telling you today, nobody with a PhD in physics can do what these tow truck drivers can do. It's unreal. So there you go. My three-year-old grandson loves shows like that. So you guys would be, you're right. You're good Heavy Rescue 401, I recommend it. I think he's quite three. There's no cussing because they're Canadian. I love it. I love it. It's fantastic. All right, Matthew, what do you got? So, so I, don't, I don't necessarily have that much to... Uh... To, to share, apart from the fact that I, I got to say, this has been this has been the the highlight of my week. Like this is uh, it's it's always very exciting to be able to share this kind of uh, this kind of um, you know this, this kind of research because a lot of work goes into it, and obviously we get all excited about it. But it's it's nice that there are other people who are also sharing in the enthusiasm. So so thanks again for the opportunity to to present this on this platform because it's a, it really is a privilege, and I look forward to sharing you know, the, 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 the future work that we have coming down the pipeline uh, with uh, the society at some point. Absolutely. Maybe as a member. We will yes. invite you back. Yes, we are exactly the brand of geek that loves to do this kind of thing. So you are, you're always welcome to, to come chat with us. That's for certain. About two months ago, we decided to up our clinical game on the pod. People were wanting to talk a little bit less about movies and a little bit more about rib fixation and chest wall injury and i think we met I, hit, I think we hit the mark today i still like discussing taylor swift all right everybody have a good week all right Matthew, say hi to david for us say hi to dr gomez bye guys we'll do thanks, thanks again. so much bye Take care.